Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. I'm really going to talk more about fashion today and bringing the subject of ballet into it, but really from a personal point of view. Like many of you, we took ballet lessons as children, and we probably saw images like this one of the wonderful Anna Pavlova. And I think since I was a child, I always made the assumption that ballet was not only a glamorous and wonderful art form, but one in which there was a certain amount of prestige associated with it. But my images have always been of the wonderful interrelationship of the ballerina and her costume, the tutu. It's really probably the most emblematic thing one thinks of um, in this art form dominated by women. But that's not necessarily the case, and I hope to present a few musings on that uh, concept. I think also many of us, uh, rightly or wrongly, have always associated ballet with the glamour of fashion. We have a wonderful example again of Anna Pavlova from the 1920s, literally entwined with the swan. Uh, that very, very famous dance made of the dying swan was her emblematic work. Uh, but this idea also of the dancer and her slim body, and notice the very highly arched feet. Um, this idea was certainly not the one that dominated dance when she was a young girl and coming up in the dance world. She was really anathema to this, and, and dancers like uh, Tamara Karsavina wrote about how she needed feeding up because she was so skinny, and her sort of sickly body, although derided initially, uh, became really the prototype of the modern dancer today. I think we take for granted the relationship between dance and fashion because this is the kind of thing that many people grow up seeing. Um, we have Madonna from the 80s deconstructing and her, doing her postmodern take on the tutu. And certainly one of the most famous fashion, if you will, television programs, Sex and the City, starring Sarah Jessica Parker, herself a real dance fan with a great dancer's body. But this interrelationship was not always so directly connected. Marie Taglioni was a very important figure in helping to advance ballet as a more legitimate and somewhat acceptable form of art for women. Taglioni did this in part through her dancing and her artistry, but also through the projection of the proper bourgeois woman. She did a lot to attract a wider female audience, a respectable uh, audience, if you will, because she herself deported herself that way on stage. People noted how ladylike she was, and even in her personal life, led uh, the life she hoped uh, would reflect that of the proper bourgeois French woman. Um, she was so popular, in fact, the number of manufacturers created styles. There was the Taglioni shawl, for example, that she uh, received royalties on. But clearly her dance was very, very different from what you would see in a respectable, even high fashion magazine. While the bodice uh, and the shoes somewhat reflected high fashion, that diaphanous skirt certainly did not. And that's in fact where the term tutu comes from. Some people say it's related to the French term cuckoo, which itself is a sort of uh, slang word for col, or the bottom, French bottom, because the people in the lower price seats, which is what we now call the orchestra seats, sometimes got a glimpse, a little more than they had uh, bargained for, when the skirts would fly up. They were very, very diaphanous. And so it's unlikely that mid-19th century couturiers or women of uh, power and prestige would ever have really desired to look like a ballerina. 
although certain images exist from that time period, um, looking a little bit like a swan-like dress uh, or something that you might see uh, like coming out of Cotillon. But clearly, these were not dance costumes in any way. And certainly dance in France, after the retirement of stars like Essler and Taglioni, really sort of decreased quite a lot. The quality of dancing and the quality of choreography and music that went with it uh, diminished. Thankfully, we have the Russians to thank for reviving and really making ballet the great art form that it is. Um, sadly, it happened in, in some ways through their own revolution of 1917, but not before the ballet had really risen and become a supreme art form. And one of the ways in which we see this change is through the changing respect and wealth of some of its leading stars. The prima ballerina Assoluta, um, I think her absolute supreme role as the leading ballerina in Russia can be questioned, but certainly not her role as a very powerful figure in the Mariinsky Theater, which was then the great uh, epicenter of classical dance in the world. And what we see here is this woman who was the former mistress of Tsar Nicholas II is wearing some of her jewelry collection. Um, she was very famous for having an incredible array of jewels akin to someone in the royal family. And while people and top ranks, uh, dancers in the Mariinsky would be awarded jewelry from the imperial family, uh, Shishinskaya's collection surpassed everyone's. Um, she would not only wear them in real life, but also on stage. And it was said that she was so dazzling that she positively twinkled even when she was standing still. Um, our colleague Anna Weinstein has written about the fact that when she went to London uh, for one of her tours with Diaghilev, a big deal was made about this incredible jewelry that she traveled with and that she had to get special security guards. And I think they even did promotions with Selfridges department stores. And the role of the dancer and fashion, and in this case, extraordinary jewelry, I think was very important, again, for elevating the role and the importance of the ballerina at that time period. We see it in not only her physical manifestation, but also in what she was able to possess as an individual. Um, her incredible mansion in a beautiful section of St. Petersburg became, after the revolution, the headquarters for Lenin, after they pr uh, pretty much destroyed the place. But the idea that a woman from a relatively modest background could rise to these ranks was something that was really not seen in Western Europe. But Russian ballet and the creation of dance costume and subsequently its impact on fashion was something that would take pretty much the 1870s through the early 20th century to establish. The vocabulary, the changes going back and forth would impact popular culture, ballet, as well as fashion. And one of the ways in which we see this transference of styles and the growth and development of ballet, the art form, is through the importation of foreign talent. Um, the czars and the imperial family were very generous to people like Carlotta Brianza, one of the three great Italian ballerinas, Virginia Zucchi and Pierina Legnani. And this Italian invasion, along with French and Scandinavian ballet masters, did a lot to reinvigorate dance. But Brianza was just one of several dancers who pushed to have higher skirts. Virginia Zucchi, also known as the Great Zucchi, uh, actually started a bit of controversy in the 1880s when her role in La Fille du Ferro uh, required, on her part, a much higher body-revealing costume. And it so much shocked the Russians that they were going to shut the production down, but she insisted, I'm not going to wear a costume that would be fit for my grandmother. 
And the reason for this is the Italians were noted for being incredible athletes, and you can see this with these incredibly strong, sturdy bodies, not only reflecting the styles of the time, the more voluptuous Victorian and Edwardian bodies, but also the fact that it required that kind of physical exertion, because again, the shoes, as we've heard, were not as strong. And they also felt if they were going to go through all this effort to dance brilliantly, they wanted people to see their legs. Um, by the early 20th century, we see great dancers like Vaganova, who would go on to become the most important dance teacher in Soviet Russia, um, adopting that ballet skirt, what would become the pancake tutu, higher, rufflier, and fuller. We see its transference over into popular culture. Much later, in ways such as Hollywood's adaptation of the idea, the great Louise Brooks, who was a dancer before she became a film star, and perhaps more interestingly, Cléo de Merode. One of you had asked about the influence of fashion and ballet, and this may be one of the early key figures in Western Europe to do that. She was incredibly popular. Her face appeared on these postcards that were distributed all throughout Europe and the West, and she was one of the most recognizable women at that time period. Photographed in high fashion, theatrical costume, and even in ballet costumes, she was a ballet dancer, uh, was really quite extraordinary. She was sort of, as a friend of mine said, the Kim Kardashian of her time period. Um, and my interest really is the role of the tutu, because again, as we're seeing, it's sort of fetishized a little bit, and certainly the tutu being worn by an array of international stars. The solidification of the tutu and its relationship in fashion, I argue, really starts during the interwar years. And one of the key ways we see this change is coming about is the bringing of real high classical Russian ballet to the West. Um, and no ballet exemplified that perhaps more than the Sleeping Princess, as it was known. We think of it as the Sleeping Beauty. The 1921 production by Sergei Diaghilev of the full-length ballet was real departure for him, not only because it was a full-length high classical ballet, uh, normally he did one-act uh, productions, but it brought a whole new range of costumes. These look pretty exotic, but notice also the trimming of the bodies, and this more slender body type starts to come about as the rise in ballet changes. And keep in mind, I'll bring this subject back up in a minute, the idea of London as being an important epicenter. Not only do we see classical ballet, the concept of full-length Russian ballet is becoming important, but the role of the romantic style combining with it. And Pavlova was considered really a great archetype to bring back what Karsavina said was the Taglioni style of romantic dancing, one that was expressive and also had a delicacy to it. And with that, of course, meant the return of the romantic style tutu. We also have her sort of, if you will, twin almost, Olga Spetsitsyeva in Giselle, her greatest role. But the Russian ballet Russe, although they were doing productions like Scheherazade, were also interested in the Romantic Revival. Two great pieces by Fokin, we have Les Sylphides, originally Chopiniana, and Carnival, not only used music from the Romantic era, they really were carefully studying and looking at imagery to create the costumes from that time period. And perhaps it's not surprising that fashion had also gotten a bit of the romantic bug. Now what's interesting is we start to see skirts becoming fuller and sort of more ruffly during World War I, and by the 1920s, the altar 
ego, if you will, to the more slender, uh, streamlined, flapper-style dress, as it's called often, was this real romantic style. Um, one of the great couturiers of the interwar years, Jean Lanvin, was probably the preeminent creator of the style garment. And although we uh, recognize it less today, it was very prevalent and very important in its time period. But the interrelationship between ballet and fashion really galvanized around 1930. It's when the word ballettoman actually enters uh, the Oxford English Dictionary. And part of this craze is thanks to the fact, sadly, that so many Russians were forced to leave, settling in two major centers at that time period. In Paris, very much so because you didn't need a visa to enter the country, and also London became another important uh, city. Paris was important because in 1930, uh, excuse me, 1929, uh, we know that Sergei Diaghilev died, and so the revival of the Ballet Russe would go and sort of manifest itself in many different ways. One of the important changes was that George Balanchine became uh, its, one of its chief choreographers, and this particular piece, Le Cotillon, was a very important piece where we saw the collaborative effects of a Russian choreographer, a Russian dancer, trained in Paris by a Russian ballerina. We have Tumonova, um, who was a student of Olga Preobozhenskaya, another great Mariinsky dancer, wearing a costume by a French artist that was executed by a Russian designer. Uh, and again, Karinska is very important, but she really cut her teeth with dance costumes at this time period. And we do see this interrelationship, so that by the, I would say, 1933-34, many, many creators of fashion were doing their versions of the tulle evening dress. We see this over and over again. One of the most beautiful is this midnight blue version by Chanel, covered with sequined stars, not dissimilar from the one worn uh, by Tumanova in uh, the Cotillon costume. And even reaching into Hollywood, Hollywood was another important source for the dissemination of fashion concepts. Uh, again, these were costumes, not fashion garments, but we can see the interrelationship during the mid to late 1930s. The other important thing is that fashion photography got into this, and many, many top photographers were again creating romantic imagery. In fact, the romantic style was permeating everything, interior design, contemporary fashion, as well as many areas of the performing arts. Many of you know that Madeleine Vionnet was arguably the greatest couturier of the interwar years, and she became most famous for the manipulation and really the expansion of what one could do with the bias cut. But she almost always opted for very soft, pliable fabrics, silk satins or crepes, fabrics that had a sort of body-clinging quality but also were very easy to manipulate from that point of view. Karinska was aware of this, and she may have been the first ballet creator to have appropriated the bias, but instead of using the soft, flexible fabrics that the Vionnet used, she would actually do them for the more structured satins that, or velvets that were necessary for the uh, corset tops of a ballerina's tutu. So by doing this, those of you that know construction, that the bias is pliable. So already she was giving greater flexibility and pliability to the costumes for choreographers like George Balanchine. But Karinska had a career on the other side of the channel as well, in what would become one of the most important ballet epicenters of the mid-century, London. Um, as I noted, the British were great ballet fans. Ballet critics like Arnold Haskell and uh, Cyril Beaumont arose, uh, uh, choreographers like Friedrich Ashton, who in fact was inspired by the dancing of Pavlova, ballerinas like Margot Fontaine, 
and designers like Cecil Beaton all jumped onto the ballet bandwagon. And this romantic idea was exemplified not only in costume, in this particular piece, Apparitions, but also by fashion designers. Charles James, a milliner-turned-dressmaker, uh, makes this beautiful piece. Also the coloration and use of materials, pink and black tulle, uh, very evocative of ballet. Even more so is Norman Hartnell, uh, one of the great British uh, couturiers, this incredible piece that was done uh, for a stage play starring uh, Gertrude Lawrence, was only one of several types of romantic garments that he did inspired by ballet. And it's wonderful because he takes his cue not only from uh, Chanel, whose lace dresses were probably a certain source of inspiration here, but note how he in fact makes the queen mum one of the most regal and high-standing members of Western society into a pseudo-ballerina, something that we certainly would not have expected in the Winterhalter portrait uh, that we saw earlier of uh, Empress Elizabeth of Austria. So this idea that ballet had transformed enough to take on a certain legitimacy was really this turning point in which ballet and fashion now became, if you will, sort of uh, more directly interrelated. It is absolutely, uh, I think, uh, codified uh, by the post-war era. As we see, this is uh, the very young ballerina, Margot Fontaine, uh, ready to go on tour with the Sadler Wells Ballet. This company would eventually become the Royal Ballet. And she and a number of dancers from the company were in fact used as models to help promote British fashion. On their tour in 1949, which was highly, highly successful, they took America and Canada by storm and Margot Fontaine became a certified superstar. On the cover of Time Magazine, she was also featured in the pages of Vogue. And the number of designers of the ISLFD, I always forget those initials, uh, were very purposeful in using dancers who were the new ideal uh, for high fashion. You had this sort of regal body type and this sort of slenderness that was absolutely in keeping with the 1950s style. Now what's interesting is how the garments um, start to take on a more rigid quality after the war. There's corseting, and certainly designers like Dior are responsible for leading that charge. And although Fontaine, of course, is a loyal British citizen, she was a great lover of French fashion, and Dior was her favorite. She was very fortunate to have been introduced to Dior, and it's known that she did obtain a dress from his very first collection. Although more than 60 garments uh, from her personal wardrobe exist in the Bath Museum in London, that particular dress has been lost. She also ordered her wedding dress from the house of Dior, and later from the house of Yves Saint Laurent. And she would, in the mid-1960s, be uh, voted one of the 10 best-dressed women in the world. I think Fontaine, like uh, the, her predecessors, understood the importance of uh, personification, the visual manifestation of the ballerina, both on stage and off. And Fontaine, in many ways, was ideal because she had these so perfect ballet proportions. And I just want to point out not only her body type, which really has started to become our prototypical idea of the ideal dancer, but notice how the garments, the uh, ballet costumes themselves are becoming much more rigid. This really is much more like that pancake or stiffened tutu. And we start to see the use of jewels now embroidered onto the front. If you see Margot Fontaine in certain roles in the 1930s, her costumes are really much fluffier and they're covered with little bows and things. So that romantic vestige is somehow sw uh, swept away for a style that's a little bit more streamlined. 
But still, the interrelationship between the romantic style of dress is certainly evident. Uh, Dior loved the ballet, as Valerie noted, and even created his famous black swan gown. But he was not the only one. Pierre Balmain also was a bit of a ballet man and attended the ballet. Now, Fontaine was certainly not the only famous uh, British ballerina. And arguably, according to some sources, Moira Shearer might have been the most famous ballerina at the mid-century, in large part due to her incredible role in uh, The Red Shoes. The movie was made in 1948, and it was not only a great, uh, probably the best ballet movie ever made, but uh, one of the most popular films of the time. It didn't, however, get released in the United States till about 1950-51, so uh, it continued to have, I think, legs for quite a while. I think one of the things that's so striking about that film is the high drama, the drama of the story, the drama of the performances on stage, and the clothing. It all goes hand to hand, and as one person had said, it's a hymn to excess. And I think also escapism, because remember that ballet grew and really became popular and really was interfacing with fashion very effectively during the Depression, World War II, and in the immediate uh, post-war, Cold War era. And so this escapism and the sense of glamour may have helped contribute to the popularity of ballet around the world. And here we see, just again, even Jacques Foth's work uh, is featured here in Life magazine in America and really shows the interrelationship between dance and fashion. But on this side of the Atlantic, we do owe a great deal of credit to, again, the emigres coming out of Russia, the great George Balanchine, and as many have noted, the streamlined ballet style is what he's most famous for. But the idea of interfacing with dance, we have the great Tanakil Leclerc wearing the original costumes designed by Kerenska for um, La Valse. This is one of several what they call glove ballets, like Sleepers uh, Lieder Valse was another one, where you have the full-skirted romantic style and the long evening gloves. In fact, it's very evocative of the type of garments one would have seen in the mid-century. Christian Berard, who made the costume, designed the costume for Cotillon, inspired Dior, who inspired Karinska, who inspired Balanchine, who again probably saw this filtering process going back and forth. But we also see that other couturiers picked up on these ideas. Again, this layered tulle skirt. Two examples by Charles James, uh, who I mentioned earlier, the British-American designer. We see this incredible piece, the uh, butterfly gown, with layers of different colored tulle. Now again, certainly that dress is so rigid, nobody's going to do any ballet in it, but it certainly is certainly sweeping and beautiful in motion. Um, but his ready-to-wear version of it does give this essence of seeing the legs in motion and also the changing quality of the layers of tulle underneath. Now, while this may be a more sublime example of the interrelationship of ballet and fashion, we do have some rather funny ones. <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything other than I found this particular image, and you'll see why in a second. Um, this harkens back again to the work of Gilbert Adrian, uh, who was the great Hollywood costumer. And many people credit Adrian with popularizing, if not actually starting certain trends, the uh, dynamism of his costumes in MGM films during the 1930s was very important. And if you want to talk about him to excess, this certainly is it. Uh, Glinda the Good Witch in a ridiculous romanticized costume. Um, and as she said, she looks like a fugitive from a German opera. I've always wondered, though, if you take a look at Cecil Beaton's work for um, the New York, this, believe it or not, this is New York City Ballet, Friedrich Ashen was invited to come and do a particular piece. So Tanakil Leclerc, noted for her speed and long legs, exemplified in Balanchine's costume, looks a little bit like Glinda here. But one saw, I uh, would say somewhat sadly, 
uh, after the 1970s, a period I remember very fondly with ballet, a sort of falling off of popularity throughout the 80s and 90s with ballet. Even though its role in popularity may have changed a bit, one certainly sees that contemporary designers are picking up on this. Uh, again, we, we know that from seeing them on the red carpet that many fashion designers uh, look to these types of events to showcase their designs. And it's very obvious when you see this where the influence must have come from. But I think what's really touching is to see the interplay coming back into high fashion. As Mark Happel noted, the revival of um, Symphony in C, he was certainly looking at the work of the great Balenciaga, really here more for the structure, the sort of rigid mid-century structure of the bodice. And again, think back to those images of Margot Fontaine in the Dior gown, as well as the ravishing embroidery done um, by Lesage for Christian Dior uh, for his famous Juno gown, the Greek goddess whose symbol was the peacock. And again, all of this interrelating to Vogue's most recent layout, uh, it's really wonderful to see the uh, interest in ballet again and high fashion, especially in a center like Paris. But I think also, again, just on a personal note, it's always that sort of dream, the ethereal dream and the beauty. I, we know it's hard work. We know that ballet is something that requires tremendous natural gifts and discipline. And while most of us will never achieve it, this is probably the level at which we sort of actually go. We may aspire to something else. This is probably more like the reality. I think that being able to work in the field of fashion gives us incredible opportunities to see this interplay. Thank you very much.